Good morning, everyone. Well, it's a privilege to be with you all and to share again this morning. And I've been contemplating the events of the world and the affairs of men and so forth. And for the last month or so, I've been considering the book of Esther. And Esther has a heroine in scripture and so forth. And the thing that dovetails all this together with the affairs of men is just you see as you read through the book of Esther how God just masterfully orchestrates everything in this whole situation uh, from, from the very beginning to the very end and how God just, and even though this is the only book in the whole Bible where God's name's not mentioned at all, um, there's no, there's a there's references or to him sort of, but not explicitly stated, no names of God, no calling out to Jehovah or anything. And yet he is, in this book, as much as, if not more, than some of the others that we see in Scripture and how he orchestrates everything. <clears throat> so I wanted to look at it this morning and almost a, almost as a case study of how God just literally orchestrates and rules in the affairs of men. You could call it, you could title this, For Such a Time as This, How, God, how God's Providence rules and reigns in the affairs of men. And seemingly unconsequential decisions are made here, and seemingly inconsequential decisions are made here with very consequential, <laughs> that, that, that turn out to be very consequential in the long run. We're going to start with just inter- introducing a few of the characters here, just for the sake of our notes. <clears throat> First of all, the time and setting is... As we all know, the kingdom of Persia, where we are, we are well into the Israelites being exiled and and being in Persia. They're they're now under the reign of King Xerxes, lesserly known as Ahasuerus, but more commonly referred to in historical context as King Xerxes. He's the ruler of the vast Persian Empire, and all of these events take place under his reign. Many of the decisions made in this story are made by him, although he's not really directly involved in them. He's influenced to make these decisions, which is a key point, a takeaway from Xerxes. He's portrayed as impulsive, a little bit unpredictable. Uh, He's swayed by his emotions, for sure. He's also swayed by the counsel of his advisors, leading him leading these, like I said, seemingly insignificant decisions to have pretty drastic consequences down the road. Some re- takeaways for King Xerxes is the importance of counsel and seeking the right counsel. Because as you see, Haman influences him to go, him to go one way. His, his counselors at the beginning of the book influence him to ditch his wife and find another one, which, and then Haman influences him and that ends up resulting in the entire Jewish population being under threat. And then how Esther is able to influence him and turn him into a different direction. Just again, the importance of having good counsel, good advisors in your life. I think of Rehoboam, who took the advice of the young men, took the advice of the old men after Solomon had passed and and says, oh, I'm going to listen to the young guys who don't know what they're talking about, but I'm going to listen to them anyway. So 
His character off, offers valuable lessons about leadership, discernment, understanding, counsel, and so forth. We have sort of a minor character, but again, seemingly insignificant, but very significant in the overall context and scope of the book, and that's Queen Vashti. She's only in here for the first few pieces. But the decisions that she made, the behavior and so forth, influenced the rest. This whole story wouldn't have happened if, if Queen Vashti had have made a different decision. She's the wife of King Xerxes. She's the former king. Her role in this story is relatively short-lived. Her actions at the beginning have significant implications for the rest of the book. She is known for her refusal to enter the king's presence and show off for the king who's having a drunken party. And it says in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's own desire, every man's own pleasure. And this had been going on after he had been showing off the wealth and extravagance of the kingdom. And he says, let's have a party to celebrate and basically do whatever you want, party and all sorts of things. And then he says, let's show off how pretty my wife is and invites her in to show her off. And she refuses. Why she would want to go in and show off for a bunch of drunk men is a completely understandable thing. But the result of it is, because she has slighted the king in, in front of all of his friends, he's extremely upset. And as the result of this is he puts her out from his being his wife, and now they begin a search for a new, a new wife. Another character here at the beginning, Mordecai. He's a key character in the book. He's a Jewish man. He serves in the king's palace. He is Esther's older guardian who takes over after Esther has been orphaned. He's depicted as wise and righteous, known for his loyalty to the people and his refusal to compromise any of his beliefs. And he influences Esther in the right direction. He helps her by giving her wise counsel over looking, looking out for her. When she's taken into the house of the house of the women there, he's checking on her daily, giving her advice, helping her, keeping close ties with her so she's not left on her own. He clearly cares for her. He clearly loves her. He clearly wants what's best for her. His character is characterized by his faithfulness to God, his protection and his protective love for Esther, looking out for her. And his actions exemplify the importance of standing up for your own beliefs. There was a portrayal, there was a law that Haman was able to influence the king to make uh, that said everybody needed to bow to Haman and worship him as if he was God. Because the Persians practiced that. Your leaders, you bowed before them and worshiped them like God. Alexander the Great did a similar thing. And yet Haman walks by and Mordecai doesn't bow. And this infuriates him. And this is, again, where our story. So we're going to pick up our story here in chapter 2. And I promise you we're not going to go through all 10 chapters verse by verse. That's a different message for a different day. But we bring in now in introducing Esther, who's the heroine of the story. She's a young woman chosen for her beauty to enter into the, the house of the women here. And she is a candidate to become the next queen to replace the deposed Vashti. You'll see in this story courage. You'll see in this story humility. You'll see in this story a certain... A, 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 a good amount of uh, forcefulness, too. She's quite firm in what she says, and in, in a hum humble way, but in a strong sense of duty 
in love to watch out for her people and make sure that her people are protected. She's, she's got inner strength and outward strength, faith and self-sacrifice. She goes into the king's presence knowing that if the wrong thing happens, she's toast. And she knows it. She says, if I die, I die. But she goes in there knowing the results of what could happen, and yet she does it anyway. That's tremendous strength in the eye of adversity and so forth. And standing up for what's right. Again, we can't let our people perish. So she goes through kind of three houses. In Pastor Bailey's book, he breaks it down. And the house of adoption, the house of the women, and the house of the king. And it's a good kind of, it's a good way of presenting it. He's doing it from a different perspective in his book, but it's a good way of thinking about it because she's qualified and selected. She's now in and prepared. She goes through this house of adoption into the house of women where she's prepared and selected. And then finally in the house of the king where she has to watch out and be checked for her people. And he calls it in the book, kind of likens it to called, chosen, and faithful, which is a, a larger progression for our spiritual lives. But let's read Esther 2, verses 5 through 7. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her on as her daughter. We get a sense of where she's coming from. We don't exactly know how old she is. She's called, a, in the King James, she's called a, a virgin. She's called, so clearly not married, clearly on the younger age, part of the age spectrum. And he essentially, Mordecai essentially adopts her. So she's gone through a fair amount of struggle in her life already. You know, her parents have passed away. They've been carried away from their homeland into this foreign nation where they're surrounded by all sorts of things that you might not want to grow up in. And yet she has this influence, this Mordecai who watches out for her. And because of her beauty, we see that later on, verses 8 through 9, she is put into the house of the, of the women, they call it, <clears throat> where they prepare this, it's like a, think of it as a ancient replication of what they put on TV in that show, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, where they have all these women who are getting ready and they have this one guy who's going to make the selection. Um, that's kind of, well, it is what they're doing. They're putting and preparing everyone. And they're, and they're going through a certain amount of uh, preparation to be able to be a queen and behavior and all sorts of other things too. And an interesting point here is he, re, he, re, he tells her in verse 10, we won't read it, but he charges her that she conceal her heritage. Don't tell people that you're Jewish. And a critical decision that seems, again, insignificant, but has huge consequences down the line. When you might think, why would he do that? Why? They were living together. They were all there. But he tells her, don't tell people your heritage. And you, there's many different decisions, the reasons why that could be. There, there, there certainly was a fair amount of anti-Semitic beliefs at this time. They, were, they brought the Jews there. They're living there. They're prospering there because as Ezekiel prophesied and, and Jeremiah told them as well, you'll, if you go there and you submit 
to the Persians and the Babylonians, the Lord will prosper you. And that's exactly what happened. He, maybe he also had a little bit of prophetic insight that if she go through this, the Lord's going to use her to, to benefit. But for whatever reason, he tells her to conceal her heritage, which she does. And he, again, he's consistently checking on her. And then we get to verse 12 where they're going through this preparation. And it's not just a couple of weeks. It's an entire year where these, these women are prepared and they go through six months of MERS and six months of treatment with MERS and so forth and six months of sweet ornaments and perfumes and so forth, preparing themselves. And again, Pastor Bailey break in, break, puts in a little bit of uh, spiritual context to this, which is important. Myrrh, speaking of bitterness, it's actually an embalming fluid, but it, in spiritual concept, context, it speaks of meekness. And the bitterness that she would have had to have gone through, I mean, she's lost her parents, she's you know, a stranger in a foreign land, she's selected for a harem, basically, that couldn't have been pleasant, but the Lord was preparing in her and he's working in her. The end result being this meekness and humility to where she's able to present herself to King Xerxes at the end and he finds favor in her. He chooses her above all of the others and then is able to pass the scepter to her. But at any point, any decision along the way could have disqualified her from this. And Mordecai constantly checking in, hey, making sure you're okay, is everything all right? and giving her the right counsel, you know. And then the six months of sweet odors and perfumes, we go through bitter times that produce meekness, but it's not all that way. Sometimes it feels like that way. <laughs> it's like every time bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. And the Lord's working on you. And, you know, I thought of Naomi as well, where she's coming back and she says, don't call me Naomi, which, which means uh, blessed by the Lord, but, or my delight is what it means. But call me Mara, call me bitter because I've gone through some really hard times. But then at the end of that story, here she is, she's holding Ovid and all the women are around her. You know, you're blessed of the Lord. And you're, this is, they call, they call Ovid the child of Naomi because of this. And it's, it's amazing to see how the Lord works those times of joy out of, as a result of bitterness and so forth. And it's important for us to go through those times of joy and gladness and reflect on what God has done and remember and be joyful and thankful and hold on to those. And we're going to see at the end, they actually start a whole feast as a two days of remembrance of what God does in this time frame, to remember and be thankful. And have you ever talked to somebody who is, says, oh, well, good things are happening, but yeah, tomorrow it could be worse. It can always get worse. That's, that's a negative. That's an unfortunate way of looking at good things. Oh, well, it, it could get worse tomorrow. Say, nope, it's good right now. I'm thankful that I'm not having a bitter time right now. It's good. I'm thankful and be happy with it. So as a result, and, the, and we see here, we're not going to read it for the sake of time. Actually, let's read it. it the time for the, the women to present themselves to the king comes. And in verse 13, they're given the opportunity to prepare to go into his presence in whatever way they want. It says, whatever you, they desired, it was given to her to go out of the house of the women and into the king's house. They could basically choose and pick whatever they wanted. But when it became Esther's time, here's another one of those seemingly inconsequential things. When the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing other than what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, 
the keeper of the women, appointed. She says, I don't know what to do. You, I'll just take whatever you give me. Because she had found favor with this person as well, Haggai. He gave her the, the preferred place. He gave her the best stuff to prepare herself. And when her time comes, she, she basically says, I trust you. You give me what I need so I'm successful. And as a result, she obtained favor in the king. And he loved her more than all of the others and chooses her to be her queen. It shows us this little section here, tells about how God prepares Esther for her role as queen. He's putting her through some challenging times. Some, some, she's losing her parents. She's got to deny her heritage, basically, or conceal it anyway. She's not denying it. She's concealing it. And then submitting to this person who's running the harem and saying, basically, I trust you, set me up for whatever will make me the most successful. She didn't go in there like some of these other women who said, oh, I want the best and prettiest and all the gold and all the things. She said, just give me whatever you want. Because that person knows the king the best anyway, right? He's, he's saying, you know him, you know what he likes, set me up. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful character that she's portraying here. What a beautiful way of looking at it. She's not, she's not at all being needy or codependent. She's saying, you know, I know, what I, I know I want to be successful, but I trust you to set me up. And she's listening to Mordecai. And she's, she's following his advice, not because she's needy or somehow incapable of making her own decisions, but she knows, you're my father. You're looking out for me. You're helping me. And she's, she watches out for him. <clears throat> and she submits to that. Now comes the bad guy, the villain, Haman. He's a prominent figure in this story. He's the villain. He is a high-ranking king in King Xerxes' court, second only in authority to the king himself. He is depicted as arrogant, power-hungry, totally ruthless, and deeply resentful when he's wronged in a very inconsequential way, although in, in context of Persian law, it would have been a bad thing. He's promoted. <clears throat> Actually, there's an interesting point, sorry, that we should not forget. At the end, and again, speaking of God's providence, at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it's, it's thrown in here, and if you're skimming through your Bible reading, you're going to miss it. Because Esther's chosen as king, and you're like, woohoo, we're going out on a high note. And then these last two verses of chapter 2, Mordecai is at the gates, and he hears two of the king's guardmen complaining about the king. He said, man, I really want to get my hands on that guy. And they're plotting to assassinate the king. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, they find it out, and these guys are dealt with. And it's written down in the chronicles of the king of Persia. And then they don't say anything else about it for a little while. But, and it, but it seems so insignificant, but it's a huge deal in, in just a couple of minutes here. Now they promote, so they promote Mordecai, they're happy with Mordecai, but they also make Haman prime minister. And they promote him, and it says that anyone who sees him has to bow down and worship him. Now, there's a difference between paying respect to a leader <clears throat> and giving them the respect that they're due and honoring them as a leader and worshiping them as God. Completely two different things. I think we all agree with that. Haman does not bow down to, or Mordecai does not bow down to Haman as he passes by. And he's furious. He's furious. He was disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, verse 6 so as they had made known to him the people, he embarrassed him in front of his leaders too. 
And he says, he's, oh, sorry, we'll read verse 5 and 6, Esther 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, once he found out Mordecai was Jewish, he sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the land. Because of this one thing, he says, I don't want to just kill you. I want to kill everybody in your entire heritage. And he goes to the king down in verse 9 and says, King, they have a, a feast. A lot of decisions that Xerxes made are made around feast and wine. Usually not a good sign. He has a party with the king. He says, King, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver if you, and I'll pay for destroying these people out of his own pocket, basically. 10,000 talents of silver, depending on exchange and all that. I Google it so you don't have to. It's anywhere between four and $18 million in today's currency, depending on a lot of different things that are complicated to explain. The moral of the story is he really wanted to get rid of these people <laughs> and was willing to pay out of his own expense to do it. And the king says, no, 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 you can have it from the, the crown's expense, but go ahead and do whatever you want with these people. And he sends letters and decrees through all the land. And he builds this gallows that's 50 cubits high to do all of these things. But what's the response of Mordecai? What's the response of Esther? What's the response of the Jewish people? Now, several hundred years earlier, when they're still traveling through the wilderness under Moses, as Pastor Daniel's been pointing out over the last several weeks, their instinct would have been, ah, oh, Moses. You brought us here. Now we're going to get killed by this guy. These guys were killing us before, and now we're in exile, and we're going to get killed again. Could have complained. They could have murmured. But that's not what they did. Mordecai tears his clothes. He is mourning and weeping and, and wailing. And the rest of the people are doing the same thing. They heard about it, and he spreads the word. And the response this time is not complaining or, uh, complaining or being bitter against God. It's mourning and weeping and sorrow. To look for some sort of, some, he's in sackcloth and so forth. Throughout chapter 4, he's crying out to the Lord and Esther hears of it and even sends him clothes that he could change out of his sackcloth and come and talk to her because it was illegal for someone to come into the palace in sackcloth or in mourning clothes. But he refuses and sends her a message. So now they're interacting between by messenger because he won't remove his morning clothes. And he gives her a letter and says, go in, in the, before the king and, and plead our cause. And she says, well, and she replies back. We know the story. But any one of these things, if handled incorrectly or and handled differently, how would that change the story? If she would have said to the king, oh, I'm not, or to Mordecai, I'm not going in there. He hasn't invited me. It's been 30 days since he's inquired of me to come and be in his presence. I can't do it because if I do, he could kill me. Mordecai, or Mordecai replies with some, some of the famous verses, basically the theme verse of the whole book. Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Because the Persian law was very strict. Even, once it was made a law, even the king couldn't overturn it. You had to write another law to get through to overturn it. So it was very rigid, and it cost, almost cost Daniel his life, if you remember. The king made this decree, and it, it, 
indicted Daniel and he had to go into the lion's den. And the king says, oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I wouldn't have done that. But he, the law was so rigid here that Mordecai is saying, you could die just like everyone else. But if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise, from, rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Thinking about how God brings all of this together for this moment. This is the critical moment. But there are so many other sub-moments along the way that led her to this spot. And if there was anything that would have gone differently, how would it have changed the situation? And that's where my mind was going. It's like, God, you're in this whole thing. He's playing chess while we're playing checkers. He's thinking 50, 60 moves down the line, 550, 60 millennia down the line, right? He's got this whole thing orchestrated. So this young lady, this beautiful young lady with all of this great opportunity and the character that's in her, and he knows if given the chance, she's going to make the right choice. And so what, so what does she do? And she, I don't think she's questioning Mordecai here. I don't think she's, it's any kind of rebellion, a rebellious response. I think it's more of a, hey, don't forget, if I do this, I could die. And he says, yeah, but if you don't, you're still going to die, right? And so she, I don't think it was rebellious. I think she was just kind of reminding him, hey, he hasn't asked for me in about 30 days, so this could go bad. And her response is wonderful. Go gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days and a night. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go in the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. They don't just impulsively rush in. <clears throat> says, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's fast. Let's pray, which was a common thing that they did to to cover things in prayer and so forth, and something we should do too. It's not, you don't, sometimes it's not the right thing to just jump into a situation. Hold on, Lord, let's pray through this. What exactly are we trying to do? And it wasn't, I don't think at all it was doubt. Maybe we'll change the Lord's mind. Maybe something else will happen. I think it was, Lord, let's prepare the way so that the right thing that's supposed to happen happens. And she says, if I die, I die. And She's also figuring out the, re the right way to do it. And we're going to summarize the rest, but because the, all of this that happens after is on this pivotal point of if I go and I die, I die. But if any one of those things would have happened differently along the way, just think about it. Don't conceal your heritage and she lets it slip that she's a, a Jew. What would have happened there? Well, she figures, and now not only that, she's figuring out the plan. What do we do? How do we do this? So she throws a feast because the king likes feasts. And he likes to eat and have a little drink. And she th throws him a feast. And he says, okay, I'm so happy with this feast. After she goes into the, the, um, she goes into the courtroom of the king, he sees her. She dresses up nice and so forth. And he passes a rod and lets her speak, sparing her life. And now she's got her opening. She throws him a feast. He's happy. What do you want? I'll give you anything up to the half of my kingdom. She says, let me have one more feast. And this time, let's invite Haman. And we'll bring Haman in. And she invites him. She has a feast, two feasts, really. And she brings Haman back to the second feast. And in between these two chapters, Haman's bragging to all his friends, all his family. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. We won't read it. 
bragging about how he's going to kill Mordecai, builds a gallows 50 cubits high so that he can display him for everyone to see. And then verse 6, again, God's chapter 6, verse. The king goes through something that we can all identify with. He has a little bout of insomnia. And he says, somebody come read to me out of the Chronicles, because if anything will put you to sleep, it's the Chronicles. <laughs> Sometimes. But he brings the Chronicles of his own king, of his own, and he remembers, it was written down, and you think this was an accident? You think this was luck? No, this is God's providence. Oh, that's right. Haman protected me from being assassinated. Or Mordecai protected me from being assassinated. I should do something nice for him to thank him. And he invites Haman in and says, Haman, what would you do if you wanted to show the king's favor to somebody? He says, oh, we'll build up a big party. We'll throw a big feast. And Haman thinks he's planning his own coronation. And then he says, now go do that for Mordecai to show him how pleased he is. Oof, Haman must have been so mad. He's furious. He's livid. But then they bring this second feast with Haman and Mordecai, or Haman and the king. And I'm moving quickly, I know, but Esther again has this feast with the king and he's happy again and asks him what he wants. And he says, well, king, would you spare my people? Because we're about to be killed. He says, wait a minute, what do you mean? He says, yeah, my people, we're about to be killed. This is the day, actually. He says, who would do such a thing? He says, well, I'm Jewish. We were sold, verse 8 or verse 4 of chapter 7. Who and where is he that does presume in his heart to do this to you? Verse, chapter, verse 5. And she says, well, this guy right here, Haman, he's been doing it the whole time because I'm Jewish. Now, if he would have already known she was Jewish, she might not have been, even been selected. But it's like this huge revelation. It plays out almost like a movie. If you think about it. Oh, by the way, it's that guy the whole time. And we know what happens. He's sent off. He's hung on his own gallows. And they get rid of his son. But the Lord takes this situation and turns it into release, returns it into blessing. But then the, the king now has a decree that the, Israel, the Jewish people can defend themselves and take back through force, if necessary, what had been stolen from them. The rest of the chapter, verses 8 and, well, chapter 9, really, after Haman is promoted or Haman is killed and Mordecai is promoted, there's two days of battles where they go back and take what was stolen from them. So it wasn't just sparing them. He was giving them victory. He was giving them advancement and restoring what had been taken from them because they were getting plundered and looted and so forth. And it reminded me of this verse, Psalm 37, 12 through 13. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Haman, the whole time, thought he was in control of this whole situation. I'm going to turn the heart of the king. I'm going to pay 10,000 talents of my own money and so forth. And the Lord's laughing the whole time. Wait till you see what I'm going to do with this young lady. Wait till you, you see how I turn this whole thing. And this guy Mordecai, who you hate, is going to be in your position. Because that's what happens. Mordecai is elevated He's given the signet ring that the king had given to Haman. He now gives it to Mordecai. So we've got Esther, the queen, and Mordecai, the, the third in command, basically, second in command in terms of hierarchy. 
and in, in, in control of the whole situation. And Mordecai's name is not only written in our scriptures, in our works, but chapter 10, he is now written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Medes and Persians too. So the Medes and Persians know who Mordecai is because of what he did. He writes them down. And the last thing they did was, as a result, was they set up the Feast of Purim, which is a feast of remembrance and acknowledging what God did in this situation. It's two days, usually in late February, early March, where it commemorates the deliverance of the Jewish people from King from Haman. One of the typical things they do, it also commemorates Esther's courage and faith and how she was the hero of the story and Mordecai and so forth. Some of the interesting things that I like about this is it's they have a huge celebration. It's a big, a big celebration of, of God's deliverance. They read the book of, they'll dress up in costumes and so forth. They read the book of Esther front to back, and they have, sometimes they have these little noisemakers that they'll spin around, they make these noise, and anytime Haman's name's about to be read, they'll, they'll spin it like this so that you can't hear Haman's name. They have this triangular-shaped pastry that's called a Haman, I wrote it, how to, how to pronounce it, Haman Tashin, I guess. It's a triangle-shaped pastry that is, basically means Haman's pockets or Haman's pockets because he was thought to have worn a triangle-shaped hat. And sometimes they say he had triangle-shaped ears, I guess. To, but they make these little pastries to remember the villain of the story and they make this noise to block out his name so it can't be heard or read. But they're celebrating God's deliverance. So the thing that got me in this whole thing was just how God perfectly put everything in order every little detail, every little placement to get Esther to that one spot. I'm going to go in. If I die, I die. But I know this is here for such a time as this. And it really made me so thankful that we serve a God who thinks about all of those details, who knows every little thing. No, you're not denying your heritage. You're just concealing it for a minute because it's important later on and you'll see why. And Yes, you you don't you lost your parents, but I'm going to give you Mordecai, and he's going to take care of you. He's going to lead you to the right direction, and all of these things along the way take this beautiful young woman on the outside, but the beautiful character that she has, and the open heart, the open ears to listen and say, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense." Just just a, a, a wonderful example of how God looks at the affairs of men and uses people who will listen to him to do extraordinary things. And, um, you know, of course, the courage that it took to do this. This was not something that would be taken lightly. They fasted for three days and nights to prepare because they knew exactly what could happen if she went in there without him. So Esther's courage and faith inspires us to stand up for what's right, even when we know it's difficult. God leads us and rules and reigns in the affairs of men, and all we have to do is trust in him. All right, well, I hope this was a blessing and an encouragement to all of you, as it was to me. And um, why don't we just pray, and then Pastor Daniel, you're going to do a closing song? Okay. So, Father, we're so thankful. <clears throat> when we look yeah. at yeah. our time in life and our brief moment on this earth, we sometimes can be overwhelmed. We think, wow, this is all just 
happenstance. But Lord, to see a story like this, to see an event like this where you are orchestrating every little detail to preserve and protect your people, to watch out for those who follow after you. We thank you, Lord. And we are renewed and refreshed to know that you are in control of every situation in our lives. No matter how dire, no matter how drastic it might seem, you're in control. And Lord, we put our trust in you and we just ask that you would give us the courage, give us the faith to stand for what's right, even in those difficult times. And Lord, may we seal this word to our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.